You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Romans 8, 12. And uh, as you turn there, go ahead and stand up and we're going to read verses 1 through 17 this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh." that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Let's pray. Lord, uh, just another incredible section in the book of Romans, Uh, just that section dealing with our sanctification, Lord, just your spirit working in the life of a believer, pushing him farther and farther away from the world, away from the old man. And Lord, every single one of us in this room recognizes there's still just that remaining corruption that so often wars against uh, the, the spirit that dwells within us. And Lord, I pray today by your spirit, you would just quicken us to holiness and quicken us to righteousness. And by the spirit, teach us practical things that can just promote holiness and righteousness and intimacy in our lives. Lord, all these things lead to life. Lord, I pray that where the enemy would just come in and whisper into our ears, just that it's it's a responsibility of our flesh to do it according to our flesh, that, Lord, we would kill that thought 
And Lord, we would just rely upon the Spirit. Lord, may there be a whole bunch of surrender going on today as we just spend time feasting on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, hopefully you're getting in your mind just a general outline of the book of Romans. The outline itself speaks the gospel to us, uh, knowing that we were created uh, to worship the Lord and to give glory to the creator. But chapter one of Romans tells us that we've exchanged the glory and the worship that goes to the creator, and we've begun to worship created things rather than the creator. And the result of that is all sorts of hideous acts that you could ever imagine. You think of a list of horrible, sinful deeds, and that's a result of us uh, being idol worshipers and not worshiping the creator who's blessed forever. Amen, as Paul puts it. And so there's this uh, depravity of man in that we haven't worshiped God, but we worship self. Uh, We worship pleasures, we worship lusts, and and the list goes on and on, and we are depraved, uh, as well as the the moralist uh, who has uh, inherent sin, he himself is depraved as well. Even if on the outside he looks spit-polished, on the inside he's full of rotten, corrupt bones, as Jesus tells us of the self-righteous in Matthew chapter 23. And so we know from Romans 1 through chapter 3, verse 19, that man is depraved. There is not one person that is, has good in and of himself that he would be right with God because of his goodness, his own innocence. And so we are in desperate need of a savior. Uh, then after, after chapter 3, verse 19, we get into a section dealing with the justification of those who are guilty. Uh, the declaration of innocence upon those who are guilty and, you know, destined for hellfire. And we read that that justification or that declaration of innocence, it's not by works of righteousness that we have done. It's not by a hardcore keeping of the law of Moses that makes us just and innocent in the sight of the Lord. But it's because of what Jesus has done that his blood has paid the ransom price to free us from our sin, to rescue us off the auction block of slavery to sin. It's because of Jesus' perfect life, because of his death, and because of his resurrection that the doctrine of justification is applied to the life of the believer. It's by believing upon what Jesus has done that we are just in the sight of the Lord. And so that's the moment of salvation. That's when you become a Christian. You're justified. And then comes this lifelong process called sanctification, being set apart from the works of the flesh, being set apart from the worldliness that we've inherited uh, with our sinful nature. is a lifelong process. And chapters 6 through 8, through the chapter of 8, just give us just the, the doctrine of sanctification. That if we're not saved by the flesh and by our works, surely we're also not sanctified by the flesh or by the works. And so we see it's not by the keeping of the law in chapter 7. But rather, it's by relying upon the Holy Spirit who's been given to those who believe. That's what chapter 8 is all about. It's all about the Holy Spirit empowering us to holiness. And that brings us to today. You know, last week we did an in-depth study 
just of the difference between the flesh and the spirit, the difference between relying upon ourself and our works and our labors for righteousness and for sanctification uh, and, and that of relying upon the Holy Spirit uh, to change us and conform us into the image of Christ. And Paul tells us, like we studied last week, that to rely on the flesh, it brings death. But rather to walk in the spirit, it's life and it's peace. And so we see in verses 12 through 17 this morning that the sonship being adopted uh, in that process of just, in that, excuse me, in that instance of justification, the adoption papers are signed in heaven and we become sons and daughters of God. And as we are sons, we kill sins. Chapters 12 and 13 this morning will, will show us if we're sons, then we kill sins. In fact, today's study is entitled kill sin. It's pretty simple. Kill sin. And we see in verse 12 that we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. You know, after having been saved out of the world, after having been saved out of a mindset where it's, it's all about us and we've, we've thought our righteousness and our sanctifications done by our hard work and our sheer determination, not by the Spirit of God, also, our old life, our BC days, were marked by it being after the world, after the lusts of the flesh, after the lusts of the eyes, after the pride of life, after selfish ambitions. And that's what our lives were marked by before Christ. But now we see in this life of sanctification, we're not a debtor to that old life. We're not a debtor to the life of the flesh, that now we have to keep living according to the flesh. We don't owe the flesh anything because the flesh has been paid off by Jesus. So put that in your notes today, that you don't owe the flesh anything. Because as Christians, we have this thought that somehow we still need to be loyal to the people, the places, and the things that we were loyal to before Christ. We had a good set of friends and a good set, a good networking before Christ. You know, guys that called themselves friends that would be there for us any minute, and yet they also drug us into all sorts of, you know, you know, lasciviousness of lifestyle, you know, just lustful, fleshly, you know, our appetites were provoked being around these people. And we think that now we're in Christ, you know, our loyalty still extends to them. But it doesn't extend to them in the extent that we would still live according to them. Okay, there's no more ounce of loyalty to those who once dragged us into the flesh. The flesh has no claim on us. Not only to the people that we once were uh, loyal to, but it goes so far as even the subscriptions that we once paid dues towards. You know, the places we once frequented. And in this idea of killing sin, there has to be a, a thinking, a mindset that changes. No longer do we owe the flesh. And this goes to things that we, that we paid yesterday. You know, you've, you've got a direct TV package. 
and the Holy Spirit's been convicting you, maybe on a, a number of different levels, that, you know, the free HBO package or Showtime or Skinamax or whatever it might be, it's been given to me, you know, I, I owe it to primetime or whoever, you know, I don't even know who deals that stuff around here, you know, but, you know, I owe them, they gave it, I owe them to keep it, I owe them to watch it, or, you know, I paid that bill, and so I'll repent, I'll kill sin after that has expired. You know what you're doing in that instance? You're a debtor to the flesh. You know, or, you know, the Lord's telling me, and I'm not saying that, you know, having TV is bad or anything like that. You know, I'm just too cheap in some instances to pay for it, you know. Um, but, you know, man, Lord, you're convicting me on this, but I, I paid the bill yesterday. And so I'm going to wait till that expires. Or I'm going to, I owe it to keep it. No, you don't owe the flesh anything, ever. People, place, thing. You don't have to go there. You're free now. Okay, and yeah, you might have to eat or bite the bullet on 32 bucks or something, but kill it. Okay, if the Holy Spirit's leading you to, if he's convicting you on something, the magazine subscription, yeah, it's technically just about working out, you know, but man, there's just images in it that, that drive me and lead me down the road of lust. But, you know, I owe it to my six pack to keep getting the fitness magazine. You know, you don't owe it, Nothing. Kill it. Get rid of it. You're debtor not to the flesh. These friends have been there in my hour of need. You don't owe them. Okay? What you owe them is praying for them. What you owe them is you being set apart from the world, praying for them, witnessing to them, being a light, inviting them to fellowship where there's no opportunity you know, uh, to fall into those sins here. I want to be with you. I want you to be saved. I want you to come to know Jesus. You're not a debtor to the flesh. Why pay for your destruction? You don't owe the flesh a thing. In fact, as verse 13 tells us, you owe the flesh nothing but war. And now you owe the spirit. Now you owe the spirit. As 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, we were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. You know, now we just, out of love, give to the one who bought us. We give to the one who bought us with his blood. We want to glorify God with our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our feet. We want to present our members as instruments of righteousness as instruments of righteousness to God, as chapter 6 tells us. So, first of all, this morning, you are not a debtor to the flesh. And there are just a lot of lies and there's a lot of ways of thinking that need to change. By the Spirit this morning, you don't owe the flesh a thing. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We looked at this last week, you know, in verses 5 through 11, the contrast between the flesh and the spirit. And we know that being after the things of the, of the flesh brings about death. A couple, you know, months ago now, really, Romans chapter 6, when we were there, Romans 6.21 says, What fruit did you have then 
in the things which you're now ashamed. The end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, so now there's just an owing to God rather than an owing to the flesh, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The old man, the way of the flesh, the slavery to the flesh, we know it, it's, it, it has its payment. If you want your payment, it's going to bring death. You'll die. But being a slave now and just owing your life to the one who gave himself for you, just out of love, out of response, it's life, it's peace, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so not living according to the flesh, which brings death, verse 13 says, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. We see this killing of sin, this putting to death. A believer's life will be marked with courageous action against sin and towards holiness. And so if you're a believer today, ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart and your life. Don't examine it on your own. You ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart and your life. Is your life marked with courageous action against sin as well as courageous action towards holiness? Jeff Wilson said, we do not confuse a false sense of security in sin from a true experience of salvation from sin. You know, there's so many times that people that profess to be believers, they're comfortable in their sin. They've hardened their heart so much against sin that they're no longer convicted about sin. They're numb to sin. You confront them on it, they say it's not wrong. Well, the Holy Spirit hasn't convicted me and they're comfortable in sin. And you are here today and by God's grace, he's brought you here to warn you that you're in a dangerous place if no longer are you sickened by the sin that's in you. Rather, you're comfortable. There's a difference between a false sense of security in sin and the true experience of salvation from sin. Went over to Corvallis this last week and taught the entire book of Hebrews in eight hours. And uh, man, if there is a theme in Hebrews, it is a warning. It's probably a secondary theme to Jesus being better and superior than all of the Jewish customs and the laws because he's the fulfillment of the customs and the laws. But this second huge theme that goes through the book of Hebrews is a warning to the Hebrew people who have professed at one time a relationship to Jesus and a warning to them that you do not drift off the path. Warnings against unbelief. As the author says, it's an evil heart, the heart of unbelief. Warnings against drifting away, hardening your heart, degeneration or immaturity in the faith, and warnings against departing. Big stuff. That after, for me, spending hours studying it again and then teaching it, oh, it's so good, it's so hard. 
you know, because I see myself in all of these passages of warnings and, and it's just, oh, it's, it strikes fear and terror in me because I just want to love Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. I don't want to have an evil heart of unbelief. And praise God, by the Holy Spirit, he's used it to draw me close to him rather than using it to say, ah, you know what, I don't really care. It just, I don't feel really any remorse or scared, you know, fear of sin. Man, it's drawn me close to the Lord. It's good to be warned. As the Hebrew people were warned in the book of Hebrews. And so in this Christian life of sanctification and the process of sanctification, sometimes as Christians, we just want to get zapped. You know, we struggle with a sin or we've struggled with a set of sins. And, you know, we come to Christ and we just want this like electrocution, Holy Spirit, you know, electrocution, something where we get zapped and no longer ever have temptation again or no longer ever struggle with those things again. And you know what? That's just not biblical sanctification. There are times where someone with a drug use you know, issue will get saved, come to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit does a radical work of just obliterating any more temptation for that ever again, complete and absolute freedom. Or someone who's struggled with sexual immorality, they come to Jesus, and just the Holy Spirit does this healing work in that individual's life where they never, ever, ever struggle again with Sexual lust or temptation. It does happen. But it's not the only process of sanctification in the believer. Sometimes the process of sanctification in the believer is this continual slaughtering and mortification on a daily basis of that sin. It's, you know, the the part of the paradox of the kingdom of God where the kingdom of God is already but not yet. Already, but not yet. And we know that one day we'll be completely delivered from the flesh to where we'll just never even be tempted anymore by it. And so there's a reason, there's verse 13, written to believers in Rome, encouraging them to mortify the deeds of the flesh or put to death the deeds of the flesh. So uh, you might just mark there in your notes or on your margin that, you know, the King James Version uses almost a stronger word than even put to death, and it's the word mortify. Mortify, a, a word that I love. Now, before we get into what mortification is or what putting to death is, real quick, let's look at what mortification is not. What putting to death is not in the Christian life. First of all, mortification is not perfection. Okay? Mortification is not perfection. And I'm just warning you today, um, as I studied for the last couple of weeks over this section of scripture, almost everybody I read or listened to quoted a 16th century Puritan named John Owen. And uh, this guy, he was born the same year Shakespeare died. He was a chaplain in the army. Uh, He was a a leader of the uh, Cambridge and Oxford College. I believe it was Oxford, actually. And, um, you know, just a a pillar in the Christian faith. You know, his writings were paramount in J.I. Packer's uh, just conversion. But uh, he wrote this book called The Mortification of Sin. 
in the life of the believer. And uh, you can download the PDF online or order the book. Uh, it was written in the 1600s, so there's a bit of it that's a little like, you know, what is this guy saying? I have to reread paragraphs. But I was just feasting upon it yesterday. I was like, okay, I'm going to read this book. And started reading it, and just so many things just like pierced my heart or brought great practical application to me. And so I'm going to be sharing some of his works with you today. And so as we look at what mortification is not, and that it's not perfection, I quote John Owen where he says, to mortify a sin is not utterly to kill, root it out, and destroy it, that it should have no more hold at all, nor residence in our hearts. It is true that that is which, uh, excuse me, this is that which is aimed at, but this is not in this life to be accomplished. There is no man that truly sets himself to mortify any sin, but he aims at, intends, desires its utter destruction, that it should leave neither root nor fruit in the heart or life. He would so kill it that it should never move nor stir anymore, cry or call, seduce or tempt to eternity. It's not being is the thing that is aimed at. Okay, so you might have been confused because I said to mortify sin is not to utterly kill it, root it out, or destroy it. Now, at first you're like, what the, you know? Okay, that's our aim, okay? Our aim is to kill it, right? Root it out. Man, I like working in my yard. I, I like to have a pretty yard, Okay? And there's those dang flower beds that just constantly have weeds coming up. All right, Try as I may. Man, I'm out there. I got the special little screwdriver looking tool. Peek, punk, peek, punk, popping weeds, popping weeds, pulling weeds, pulling weeds, spreading fertilizer, killing. My aim is to kill it. Kill the root. Let no more weeds ever come up. Try as I may. I could do like the greatest blanket application of weed be gone that the world has ever known, right? But after time, what happens? You know, a darn weed again. And I've had it where I'm like, oh, I beat the weed problem. Walking up my porch, what is that? You know? So our aim is to root it out, sin be gone, kill it at the root. Part of the kingdom of God being now is that the axe is already laid to the root. Bam! Okay? But the reality of it is there will still be just remnants remaining. That bondage of corruption. Remaining corruption. Until the day we see Jesus face to face. And Paul says in Philippians 3.12, Man, it's not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. So Paul himself would say, I'm not perfect. I'm not sinless. In fact, he'd say in places, I'm the chief of sinners. Okay? So he wasn't perfected until he saw Jesus in glory. But his aim was detest sin. The moment you see it, pop its ugly head, bam, step on it, squash it, pluck it out, cut it out. And so mortification is not this perfection 
that just immediately comes on the life of the believer. Second of all, mortification is not deceiving others about your sin. And the enemy is so tricky that he will think, hey, as long as other people don't think you're in sin, you're innocent. You're just. Wear the face, say the sayings, attend the meetings, and as long as people don't think you're sinning, you're innocent. Holy Spirit doesn't know. That's not putting to death sin. It's not fooling people. Outward aspects, or excuse me, outward respects forsake the practice of sin. Men may look at you as a changed man, but God knows that to your former iniquity, you've added cursed hypocrisy and you've gotten yourself onto a safer path to hell than you were on before. You've got another heart than you had but it's a more cunning heart. You didn't get a new heart or a more holy heart. You've got a hypocritical heart. And so don't let the enemy trick you. On the daily basis of killing sin, it's not tricking people. That's not mortification. Thirdly, mortification is not the improvement toward a quiet sedated nature. Well, he is sure more calm against the outward appearance of sin. As Owen said, some men have an advantage by their natural constitution so far as that they are not exposed to such violence of unruly passions and tumultuous affections as many others are. And so if your sin, you just really have a vice, it's anger, it's rage, it's just obvious outward, that dude has major issues, then moral reform in the flesh can be just a lot easier to It's just, man, around people, I just seem more sedated or more calm. But let not such people try their mortification by such things that their natural temper gives no life or vigor to. Let them bring themselves to self-denial, unbelief, envy, or some such spiritual sin, and they will have a better view of themselves. You see, when you struggle with those inward sins of covetousness and lust, or idolatry, or unbelief that's an evil heart, it's sure easy to have a, a quiet, peaceful demeanor when inside... You just got an evil heart of unbelief. So, improving yourself to be more quiet, sedated individual, looking more religious, that's not killing sin. A sin is not mortified, fourthly, when it is only diverted. Men at age, as Owen said, do not usually persist in the pursuit of youthful lusts although they've never mortified any one of them. And the same is the case of bartering of lusts and leaving to serve one that a man may serve another. He that changes pride for worldliness, sensuality for Phariseeism, vanity of himself to the contempt of others, let him not think that he's mortified the sin that he seems to have left. He's changed his master but is a servant still. So, bartering one sin for another. Man, I totally put to death the lust with the eyes. Totally. But I'm a vain individual now. It's all about me. 
Just every mirror that I see, I've just got to spend some time just soaking in myself. But praise God, I don't have that lust of the... Man, it's like, man, the whole flesh, the whole flesh needs to be mortified. Finally, what mortification is not? It is not occasional conquests against sin. Occasional conquests against sin don't amount to mortifying sin. We have sometimes sad eruptions, disturbances to our inner peace or our conscience. We have at times a dread that a scandal will occur. Or we have this evidence that we are provoking God to wrath. And it's only then that we would repent of our sin or mortify our sin. Or a time of judgment upon our land or calamity or pressing affliction upon our life. God uses those to lead us to repentance. But occasional conquests don't amount to mortifying sin. Because of this... Lust is quiet for a season, being run down before these conquests against it. But when the hurry is over and the inquests pass, the thief appears alive again and is as busy as ever at his work. Okay, so we have these times, these moments of just going for it, just cutting sin out of our life, bam, bam, oh, I hate this sin, or, or it's going to lead to scandal, or a judgment's going to come, yeah, you know, pull it out, right? Just this one big sweeping conquest. And sin's like a, you know, it's like a turtle or something, it'll pop its head in for a little bit. Let the dust settle after your big rampage of killing sin. And then you think, I've done it. I've mastered it. And then, like the weed, the head comes out of the shell and it's back again. And so mortification of the flesh is not the occasional conquest, but the daily conquest against sin in our life. Now, throughout the word mortify, had five big points about what mortify is and mortify isn't. You know, a hundred years ago to be mortified would have been so embarrassed, you know. Bend over, rip my pants, and I was mortified, you know. We blushed a little bit, you know. I was mortified, darling. Here's what mortify means in the King James Version. Here's what it means, really. Mortify means cold-blooded murder. And so when Paul says we're to mortify these deeds of the flesh, what is it? It's cold-blooded murder the deeds of the flesh. The language speaks of violence. And in a culture today, you know, we, we tend to say that we hate violence. Don't talk about violence. Don't talk about the blood of Jesus or the cross of Christ. Just too violent for me. But you know what? We, we think that because the world is so violent. But the reason that the world is so violent is because we have not been violent against sin. Every greedy dictator started out with a kernel in his heart of greed or of pride that wasn't crushed at the first thought of it. That same kernel is in my heart that was in Adolf Hitler's heart. And by the grace of God, he makes me aware of it 
and enables me to crush it at the first glance of it. But the reason there's so much violence or genocide and all of that is because we haven't taken genocide out against sin. Every single sin that is brought to my attention in my life, I'm going to murder it. I am going to flat out premeditate, slaughter that thing. Sounds violent because it is violence. As John Owen says, the prescription of the duty mentioned is the mortification of indwelling sin remaining in our mortal bodies that it may not have life and power to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. And this is the constant duty of believers. Not the occasional conquest. Not when you know things are going to get bad. You know, it's one thing when the scandal's about to erupt, that you confess your sin and, and you know, God is faithful. How much more beautiful is it that before there's any ever getting caught, there's a confession of the sin. There's a godly sorrow that brings you to repentance. The ruthlessness of sin requires ruthlessness against sin. As John Stott says, mortification is a clear-sighted recognition that evil is evil, leading to such a decisive and radical repudiation of it that, not, that no imagery can do it justice except putting to death. Putting to death is brutal. Putting to death is severe. It speaks of execution. You need to execute sin. Don't show it mercy because it will show you no mercy. You know, reading accounts of warfare, reading of uh, William Wallace, you know, that we know as Braveheart, you know, and, you know, reading of William Wallace and how when he captured the English, you know, they didn't have enough uh, room in their small Scottish garrison to keep prisoners of war, and the English army was advancing on them, and so they had to turn and they had to slaughter all of their prisoners because they knew when the battle came, those prisoners would pounce on them and, and kill them, and the battle would be lost. And it's the same in any war, that there are times when the prisoners must be put to death for the sake of the good of the offensive. Okay, it's brutal, it's harsh, but we apply it to our spiritual lives that are this prisoner of sin. It's not going to be nice and it's not going to be merciful and you need to just wipe it out. When that weed starts to creep up again and you're tempted again with that sin that you seem to have put to death just yesterday, don't for a second wonder wonder if it feels the same that it used to. wonder if it has the same pleasure that it used to. Because it promises that it will. It's pleasurable for a season. But the end of it is death. Don't give it an ounce. Execute it. Put it to death. No mercy. Don't give it a second glance or think about how it may have good qualities or good times. Slay it. 
Dad was a vet. And we'd have animals come in that had bitten somebody. And we'd have to put it down. And there were times I was part of putting down animals with my dad. And, you know, your heart of compassion goes out as you're holding the animal, as it's being put down. And there's just that part of me that's like, oh, I just want to save it. This thing will bite your head off. Don't have compassion against sin. Have brutality against sin. John Owen, indwelling sin is compared to a person, a living person called the old man with his faculties and properties, his wisdom, his craft, subtlety, strength. This, says the apostle, must be killed, put to death, mortified. That is, have its power, life, vigor, strength, strength to produce its effects, taken away by the Spirit. And then probably one of the most famous quotes from John Owen in The Mortification of Sin. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. It was cool to listen to John Piper tell about a, a Bible that he'd received from his grandma when he was a little kid. And he still has it in his office. And he'd get the Bible down and he reads the quote from his grandma written and inscribed. John, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Be killing sin with the book. Hide the word in your heart. That you might not sin against the Lord. Or else sin will keep you from the book. The very avenue of salvation. Galatians 5.24 says, Those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucifixion was so brutal that really it wasn't spoken of just in everyday conversation. Much like torture today. We just don't talk about torture, you know, in our just everyday conversations. Even the death penalty, you know. Crucifixion, it's a picture of what we do to our flesh. It's so brutal, but you kill it. You put it down. Colossians 3, 5 says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, sex, that's sexual immorality, it's just the junk drawer term. Every sexual deed that your little mind can think of, kill it if it's outside of marriage. Uncleanness, passion, and passion speaks of activities that lead you down the road of sexual immorality. Kill it. The shows, the movies, the magazines, the blogs, kill it. Evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. James kind of gives us an insight into how this whole process of sin creeping up its head comes about. In 1.14, he says, When one is tempted, excuse me, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. The Proverbs 7 man is a perfect illustration of this. When Solomon says, you know, I was looking out my lattice and I perceived a youth and this youth was walking down the street at night, you know, kind of minding his own business. And, and there was a seductress there standing at the door of her house. 
And she just lures him in with beautiful speech and beautiful fragrance and just all these things that look so beautiful and inviting. And Solomon writes of this boy that, or man that he was like an ox being led to the slaughter. And he didn't know that this sin would cost him his life. And the Proverbs 7 closes with just the road to that woman's house. It leads to death. It leads to the pits of hell. And many strong men have fallen by it. Many strong men. We're enticed by our desires. Drawn away by our desires. Enticed. And then that desire conceives and then it gives birth to sin. And the wage of that is death. So mortify. Kill. Kill the thoughts before it becomes an action. Kill the action before it becomes a habit. Kill the habit before it becomes a lifestyle. Kill the lifestyle before it kills you. There are some things right now in your life that the Holy Spirit is showing you, look, this is creeping in. It's just a thought right now. It's just a temptation. Kill it. Others, there's things that the Lord's shown you. It's, it's a lifestyle right now. It's moved beyond habit. You're practicing these things. Don't get comfortable in that. You kill it. Sin has been dethroned, not destroyed. Russell, his favorite song right now is Stronger. You know, we sing it a lot. Stronger, you are stronger. Sin is broken, you have saved me. And uh, driving to Corvallis, Russell and Laney in the back, and Lindsay wasn't with us, so I got to crank the music up loud. And we had this worship time that was just incredible. Me, Russell, and Laney. I mean, we're lifting our arms, and we're doing air band worship. We're just shouting at the top of our lungs, and Russell's like, hit stronger again on the iPod, Dad. Hit stronger again, and just... Stronger, you are stronger. Sin is broken. And then, Lainey, sin is broken. No, sin's not broken. She thinks sin's some person or something. Yeah. No, sin is broken, Lainey. It's broken. Jesus broke it on the cross. No, no. And I'm like, guys, 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 whoa, you know. And just wrestle all week. Sin is broken. Sin is broken. It's broken. So on the way back from Corvallis, did a couple more renditions of the song. And then listen to a teaching about killing sin. Dad, shut this man off. He's a bad man. He says we need to kill sin, but sin's been broken. Like, well, son, that's a really good point. It's just part of the already not yet of the kingdom of God. Sin has been broken at the cross. It doesn't have power over us. We're not slaves to sin anymore. That we should obey it in its lust, slavery, have to sin, broken at the cross. It is being broken right now, presently in our lives, through the process of sanctification, and one day it will just be broke. Past, present, future. Sin is broken, but it still needs to be dealt with decisively cut off the hand Jesus says in Mark chapter 9 verse 43 if your hand causes you to sin cut it off 
It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that will never be quenched. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And do you think there's a reason that Jesus repeats this? Why did he have to put that part in there every time? Man, he wants us to know you do not want to go to hell with both hands. The, both the hands that are causing you to sin. If your eye causes you to sin, you pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Again, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You deal decisively with your sin. You take brutal means to get rid of your sin. Think of the sin in your life. Think of the causes of that sin. And apply this right now. It would be better to go to heaven without having that person, place, or thing than to go to hell. But at least you got to keep that person, place, or thing all your life. Take drastic measures to get rid of sin. Hebrews 12, 4, this warning against drifting away. Paul says to them, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed in striving against sin. You've been struggling with sin. Man, I bear witness with that. We struggle with sin. But don't give up the fight. Don't give up the battle. Have you really tried that hard? <laughs> Where's the blood? Where's the hand laying on the ground? And of course, the issue is a heart issue. Primarily, the heart issue. It's all worships, worshiping of that person, place, or thing. You know, it's, it's the Mr. Frog and Mr. Toad eating too many cookies, these delicious cookies that Mr. Frog made. Oh, we've got to stop eating these cookies. These cookies are owning us. Okay, let's put the cookies in a box. Well, we can just open the box and eat the cookies out of the box. Well, I know what we'll do. We'll put a string around the box. Well, now we can just untie the string and open the box and eat the cookies. Well, we'll put them up on a shelf. Well, now we can get up on the shelf, grab the box, open it up, untie the string, get the cookies. We must get rid of the cookies. Give the cookies away. So Mr. Toad says, forget that, I'm going home and baking a cake. <laughs> we need divine willpower to kill the sin that at its core is in our heart. Paul says, I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection Lest when I've preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. We need to discipline ourselves to kill sin. Put, you know, we, we put, obviously, we put tons of discipline into our fitness. It's just obvious, okay? And into our dieting. But think of the discipline that you guys have exercised in doing these things. And, and other things that you've all been really good at. Okay? And transpose that to your spiritual life. Bodily exercise is good, Paul says, but, but godliness is profitable among all of those things. 
put that energy into your holiness. In this war against sin, give you four things. First of all, know your enemy. Know who you're killing. First of all, don't deny his existence. And so often we're like that with sin. Oh, it's not really there. Or, oh, it's just this path. No, it's sin and it's real. Call it out. Expose it with the light of God's word. It will lose a huge foothold when you don't deny its existence. Know your enemy, that he exists, that he is ruthless. He is out for blood. He never sleeps. You don't get a break from killing him. John Owen, the choicest of believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. You don't get a break. You don't get a vacation. War doesn't take a break. And until the day you die, you are at war with sin. When your enemy seems to be quiet, it is then that he's the most active. We've all been there. I seem to have a pretty good handle on this thing. No, it's just waiting to strike you. It's hiding. It's getting you away from the fellowship and the things that are going to, you know, be weapons against it. It'll make you comfortable. So you walk into the front lines and get mowed down by enemy fire. Secondly, know your enemy's strategy and tactics. Know when he strikes. Think about your, your struggle. When does it come upon, upon you? It comes when I'm alone. It comes when my husband's gone. Or it comes when, you know, it, it's late. It comes when I've got tons of time on my hands. It comes when I've got tons of opportunity on my hands. As Sandy Adams said, time plus opportunity equals trouble. Know when he strikes. Know how he flanks. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be open-eyed and vigilant because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Be open-eyed. Know when he's coming. Know his weapons. As 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, we need to be forgiving one another lest Satan should take advantage of us for we're not ignorant of his devices. Man, just study the weapons of the enemy. Don't let them be used against you. Know your weapons. Know your weapons in this war. 2 Corinthians 10.3, we walk, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Well, I thought we weren't supposed to walk in the flesh, right? You know, he's speaking of, even though we're just here, we're in these fleshly tents, they're perishing, even though we're walking around and we see things in the flesh, we don't do our battle according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal. They're not man's wisdom, man's ideas, or man's even physical weaponry, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity, the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience. When your, when your obedience is fulfilled, know your weapon. 
Know that it's spiritual weaponry, as Ephesians 6.10 shows us. That we're to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. We're to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and rulers of darkness in this age. Against spiritual hosts of wickedness. And take up the whole armor that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand. And then he goes into that list of armor in the war. I was thinking this morning of Dwight D. Eisenhower's D-Day letter. As he says, as the men almost, you know, were just heading off to the beach of Normandy and heading off through the air. He said, soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force. You are about to embark upon the great crusade towards which we've striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed people of Europe, and security uh, for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your battle, excuse me, your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Just similarly, we are against just as savage and brutal of an enemy. And we're in it together, right? We're part of the army of the Lord. Let's not isolate ourselves and seek our own glory. Let's go and kill sin with each other. Some other quick things about this verse. Verse 13. Where is the power from to put to death these things? Where is the power from? It's by the Spirit. Mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention into the end of self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. And this is a second principle of my ensuing discourse, John Owen says. You guys, don't get all pumped up today. Yeah, kill sin, kill sin, and just go do it on your own strength. Do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, by your power, we will murder the sin in our life. J.I. Packer said the motto for this section should not be let go and let God, but rather trust God and get going. There's a paradox here. We do labor, but it's in the Lord's power. As Philippians 2.12 says, that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but it doesn't end there. It says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Worship team, you can come on up. You remember Genesis 4-7 when the Lord found Cain after he murdered his brother? And he said to Cain, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you but you should rule over it. I think the words for us today, sin lies at your door, 
It wants to just totally own you. But by the power of the indwelling spirit in your life, Romans 8 preaches to us, you'll rule over it. It's got to be by the spirit. A cultivation of the life of the spirit brings the victory against sin. You'll notice in closing, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What's the outcome of this killing of sin? Life. Both right now, spiritual life, joy, movements of the Holy Spirit, mortification of the flesh is necessary for present victory and power in this age, but also the life to come. The life to come. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are a number of different sins represented in this room. Struggles, thorns in the flesh, habits that have become practices and lifestyles that by your awesome grace you've brought us here today to hear the good news, the gospel, that those who've been justified have the Holy Spirit in them and the Holy Spirit leads us and empowers us and enables us to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Lord, show us where we've had false killings of sin false mortification and we're just hypocrites or we're liars or we've only momentarily stirred up enough dust but Lord give us the power to daily and walking in your spirit crush sin's ugly head as it raises itself towards us Lord, work holiness amongst the life of the Christians today. As we take communion, Lord, we thank you for your perfect life, what you've accomplished for us, for the cross, where your body was broken, where your blood was shed. As we take it today, Lord, we proclaim just your death and your resurrection. And before we take, Lord, and this is for you today, before we take, just as the Holy Spirit has been convicting your heart of sin and of God's righteousness and of his judgment, man, just confess your sins. Humble yourself before the hand of God this morning. Be forgiven, be restored by the Spirit of God, and then partake. Let's worship. Let's just receive even a fresh, just a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit for boldness, for power, for victory. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.